The Book of Lamentations is a mournful reflection of the downfall of a kingdom as a result of their choices. It may be the perfect companion piece to any one of us who have reasons to grieve due to our own failings. Amidst our personal pain and grief, may we take comfort in this eternal doctrine of deliverance, that as we continue to seek Him, God will turn our mourning into joy. I invite you to join us in our study today and encourage each of us to request divine understanding that the Spirit can teach us individually and specifically. Welcome to Come Follow Up. I find hope through Christ and His power to heal um, because I've seen it. I've seen it with family members and friends. I feel it daily. I know that He loves me no matter what I do and will be there for me when I need Him the most. Sometimes when I'm sad or when I'm going through um, loss, it's easy to feel lost and not loved, but the scripture tells us many times uh, that we are sons and daughters of God and that He loves us. Everything that I know about Christ and that I've learned for myself has been through my personal study of the scriptures and, and the stories there. And so for me, it's really easy to go back to them um, when I'm in times of, of needing a little bit extra support or hope in my life. When we turn to Christ, that's where we find that peace. That's where we find that healing is through Him and only Him. Welcome to the show, everybody. Thank you so much for being here today. Uh, the two topics that we're gonna discuss come from our studies of the book of Jeremiah and Lamentations. And the first topic is, how can Lamentations help me with my own grief? And the second topic is, the Lord will bring Israel out of captivity and gather them. And to help us with our discussion today, we want to welcome back our good friend and scholar, James Goldberg. James, welcome back. Good to be back, Ben. James is a writer, a poet, uh, and a historian who works for the History Department of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And our special guest today, seated next to James, is David Whitchurch. David, so glad to have you here with us today. Thank you. David is an associate professor in the Department of Ancient Scripture at Brigham Young University. He is also a former associate director of the BYU Jerusalem Center for Near Eastern Studies. Okay, so let's jump into our first topic. How can lamentations help me with my own grief? Uh, James, do you mind giving us a little bit of background on some of these chapters we're going to be talking about? So last week we talked about how a lot of people came to prophesy that, that Jerusalem would be destroyed. And then it happened. Right? And, and that was hard for a lot of people to believe. A lot of people were taken captive. Many people were killed. There's, there's hunger. There's struggling. So the book of Lamentations was written by somebody who witnessed all of this and is just taking it in, in that initial moment after this beautiful city, which is also God's city with God's temple, is just totally laid waste. And in fact, the, the Hebrew title of the book is in Lamentations. It's it's how. What does that mean? It's kind of, how, how could this happen? Oh, it's like H-O-W, how. That's right. <laughs> oh, I, I, okay. I can't understand after all, you know, assuming, and there's traditionally, we don't know who the author of Lamentations is. But traditionally, tra traditionally we give it to Jeremiah. Jeremiah. And, and if, if he has spent, you know, decades preaching, prophesying, warning, and now it's happened. It's how could this happen? How yeah. could this happen? There's one verse that really stood out to me this time in chapter one. 
where I imagine this poet who wrote Lamentations, and some people wonder if it was somebody other than Jeremiah because yeah. the writing style is just quite different, okay. right? Okay. But this writer standing in this ruined city and seeing soldiers still just coming through. And in Lamentations 1 verse 12, it says, is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which is done unto me, wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. I don't know, that, that image stood by to me, that, that here they are going, I feel this sorrow that's so deep, does anybody suffer like this? And yet here I can see someone coming through where like, this is just another job, right? Like right. This, is, this is a soldier where this is just another city to raise and lay low. Okay. And that stood out to me. You know, it's masterful the way this is written because he takes the situation and actually personifies the city itself in such a way that you, you feel the emotion of the destroyed city. So, you, you know, how does the, this is verse one of Lamentations one. How doth the city sit solitary that was full of people? How is she become as a widow? And then as you keep going, she weepeth sore in the night. You, you can just, it, it is the reality of the destruction of God's people who have turned from the covenant path. So even though it's been prophesied that this is going to happen, once that reality hits and it has happened, there's... It's just that grief of how did we allow this to happen when you knew it was coming? There probably isn't a person in this room that hasn't experienced grief of some kind. Um, I, I, I think as I read Lamentations, as I read Jeremiah, you get this sense of such, it's almost a violation of trust that he's had in something that he dearly loved. And when that violation takes place, the hope that comes, that has to come is finding a way whereby we can not only get through that grief, which we all experience, but also a, a way where we can find redemption, where we can find a way to move forward instead of looking to the past of whatever event has brought about that grief, whether it's death, whether it's personal choices that we've made. And, and I think that's what the author of Lamentations is trying to describe, what he has felt and, and the express it in a way that you actually can feel the sorrow in the words that are on the page. I think too, grief grows out of love, right? Okay. We, we mourn because we love, because we cared about something. And so it's hard to inhabit love all the way if you're not gonna make room to feel that real grief. And in the Pearl of Great Price, we, we read about God himself weeping as he sees his children suffering in Noah's days, right? And it's interesting, God has an eternal perspective. God knows there, there's a plan and that Christ is gonna to preach to spirits in prison. But in that moment, he still feels their suffering with them. And I do think the Old Testament gives us a lot of examples of people really inhabiting their grief when, when Jacob uh, thinks that Joseph is dead, right? It describes him, him weeping and wailing. One translation we were reading with my kids, keening is the word. That's what's keening. And, and we had to describe how in a lot of cultures you, you don't do that hold back and pretend it's okay. Like you, you give yourself room to, to cry out, to scream. David, uh, when his son Absalom, even though Absalom had betrayed him, rebelled against him, 
When Absalom dies, he's just as consulate, right? And so here in Lamentations, we see it again, this, this real living with grief because grief comes from love. Okay. And so we can't, we can't live with love. We can't have that godly love if we don't accept the grief that's going to come with it. You know, sometimes I read this, these scriptures and there's, a, there's just this sense of the intensity, the destruction, and then the hope. And I ask myself, why did God preserve this? Why is this here for us? Is it so that when I'm home and I'm reading my scriptures, I sit down and go, wow, this is a pretty bad day. And, and, and yet it's that glimmer of we can get past okay. this. When, when we feel somehow uh, something that we love, we've talked about that, that, something that we've placed our trust in and there's a violation of that trust, that, that there is a way to get through that. And obviously the way that we get through that is through the atonement of our Savior. It's turning to God. It's yeah. turning to prayer. And, and even though that doesn't automatically take it away from us, there may be moments throughout the rest of our life that we reflect back on it. The atonement is a way for us to look forward. It's not to always stare in the rearview mirror. It's to keep us down life's path. And, and it's recorded here, these intense feelings, but also this glimmer that we can do this. It's through the mercies of God and his plan. I remember reading a study um, where they were interested in resilience. And so they kind of rate these different kids on their resilience to adversity and then the relationship with the stories that were told in families. And one thing they found is people who, who had cultures of family storytelling just had better resilience in general, right? Okay. Because they had that longer perspective. But then when they drilled down a little bit and said, what kind of stories do the families tell? Some families tell the good stories. Mm. Here's how we rose. Some tell the, tell the bad stories, right? Here's everything that went wrong. And some tell a mix, okay. right, of the highs and the lows. The best outcomes were from that third set, right? And so for us, when we recognize the depths and the heights, I think that gives us a resilience okay. to move forward. And as God's covenant people, this is our history, right? Yeah. This is our family history of the things we've been through. Okay, well, I, I love this. I mean, and Dave, I'm really glad you brought up that idea that we're not just studying this just to study. Like, we're supposed to make practical use of these things. And so uh, I'm gonna come back to the both of you, uh, but I wanna go to the audience and look at for some of those highs and lows. How have you been able to find hope through grief? Jessica. So this is like a personal um, experience for me when I was in a mission and, um, you know, nobody wanna like get a phone call from your mission president saying that a family member passed away. I remember that day when I got that phone call and then my mission president told me that my brother passed away and it was hard and I didn't wanna, I didn't wanna do anything. I didn't wanna go to work. But I remember the next morning, I was sitting in a car with my, my companion and I was bawling and, and then it started raining. And in that moment, my sister, my companion just turns to me and says, hey, Sister Eva, like, you know, the, the heavens are crying. And in that moment right there, I realized that I wasn't alone, that Heavenly Father's mourn and they're crying. And that's when I realized I wasn't alone and there is hope. And, you know, even right now, like, I'm okay. Like, it's the healing process. Time just 
keep moving and you just, you know, you don't get used to it, but you learn to live with it. And you know that there is hope. Jessica, there's a phrase I really love in the Doctrine and Covenants where it says, thou shalt live together in love in so much that thou shalt weep for the loss of them that die. And I think it's interesting, right, that, that sometimes we feel like we, we should have it together and be okay, but, but God wants us to have that morning, right? The first thing you did right is feeling that gut punch when, when you got that news. And again and again, there's a theme of the scriptures that God wants to refine us like silver and gold. And I think sometimes grief can be that refining fire that shows us what's most important, right? We grieve the most because of the things that matter the most. And that's where we find hope in, in recognizing and knowing how much they matter. And I think it's really important to emphasize and underscore whatever the reason for our suffering, right? Sometimes it's just random. Sometimes it's because of something we did. God doesn't care, right? right. Like God's mercy is yeah. equally extended. So whether it's like, a, let's say, you know, a health concern or whether it's through sin. Yeah. That grieving process, he's still going to be there. There are times when I've grieved because I did something so stupid again, right? And the worst are when yeah. I've, I've repented and I thought I figured it out. And, but we take a lot of times to that seven or 70 times seven. That's, that's how often sometimes it takes to repent, right? Yeah. But God's mercy is there for me exactly the same way that it is in the suffering that just comes from being mortal. For, for him, there's not a distinction. And that's a strong message from Lamentations and from Jeremiah. God recognizes that our faults and our wickedness have consequences, but that doesn't mean he's looking away. He's, he's looking toward us and forward at what he can offer us in the wake of that mess we make of things. Okay. And in fact, his whole purpose is to bring us back into the fold. Yeah. His work, his glory is to bring us back. Thank you, David, for, for sharing that with us. And thank you all for your comments. Uh, as we've talked about our first topic, how can lamentations help me with my own grief? When it comes to the word Israel, I often just think of like the country, the physical space. But as I've learned more about the scriptures of what Israel actually is, it's, it's a title for a people. It actually was a title for a person that God gave to somebody and then his sons and then their generations and their generations. And really it's Israel is the covenant people of God. And that has opened my eyes to how it's not just a blood lineage, not at all. It's actually a covenant lineage and that through the promises that we make with God, and make to ourselves, we are considered part of that uh, people, you know, covenant people. And it, 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 sounds, it sounds kind of intimidating maybe, but really it's anybody who has made a promise with God to follow him in its simplest sense. So our second topic for the day is the Lord will bring Israel out of captivity and gather them. And for this topic, we're actually gonna jump back just a little bit from Lamentations and go back to Jeremiah toward the end. Uh, James, you wanna kinda of catch us up in, uh, on where we are historically? Yeah, so Jeremiah was one of those prophets who, who prophesied to Jerusalem that, that it was going to be destroyed. They'd strayed from the word of the Lord. Jeremiah is an interesting book because in chapter 36, you get an account of the writing where they actually put the scroll down that makes up most of the book. 
and it says in verse two, take thee a roll of a book and write therein all the words that I have spoken unto thee against Israel and against Judah and against all the nations from the day I spake unto thee, from the days of Josiah, even unto this day. And then in verse three, he explains why. Why should this book be written? It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the evil which I purpose to do unto them, that they may return every man from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. In other words, the Lord saw that the people in the kingdom of Judah had, had strayed, they were wicked, and he knew they'd remove themselves from his protection, they'd be taken into captivity, but he still wanted Jeremiah to plant that seed of repentance, Okay. right? So maybe someday they'd remember that they'd been told they'd see purpose in it, and they'd turn again to the Lord. So he's prophesying knowing that after Lamentations, those words can be brought to the people's minds. And even in today, in our minds as well, as we make those connections of the things that we go through, always remembering the aspect of repentance. Absolutely. And sometimes maybe there's elements of scripture we, we don't get the connection right away. Okay. But later when we need it, right, it can return to us. Now, in light of uh, Jeremiah's mission, you know, and, and encouraging those, the Israelites to, to repentance, we had a, a question coming from one of our viewers that I was mm -hmm. hoping that after we can discuss a little bit and, and, and hear from our audience as well. Hi, my name is Nicole and I am from Peru. So my question is, how can the last chapters of Jeremiah help me understand the importance of repentance in my life? In terms of thinking about what we learn about repentance from these chapters, I take two big lessons. Okay. I'll give you the good news first, <laughs> okay. okay? The good news is God is always rooting for us, right? So even at this time where it's gotten really serious, we get passages like Jeremiah 33, verse seven to eight. And I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return and will build them as at first and I will cleanse them from all their iniquity whereby they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities whereby they have sinned and whereby they have transgressed against me. So no matter how bad it gets, God is rooting for us to turn to him. And as soon as we do, he can help us on that process of building us up again and cleansing us. So that's the good news from okay. Jeremiah. Okay, Are God, you ready? I'm re okay, the good news, I'm letting that sink in. Okay, God wants me to repent, he's rooting for me. Okay, I feel confident. Okay, hit me with the bad news. The bad news is we don't always want to repent, yeah, right? That is bad news. <laughs> I had an um, investigator on my mission, and my mission was in the former East Germany where schools had taught there's no God, that kind of thing. So a lot of people grew up without religion. And so for Conrad, when he felt the Holy Ghost, that was a big deal to him, right? And he knew he'd felt something. No question, felt that. So when he sinned again, he thought, am I denying the Holy Ghost, right? Am oh. I committing the unpardonable sin? And we went, Conrad, no, no, you're not, right? Like that's routine, that happens to all of us. But I thought a lot about how can I get through to him? And I said, okay, let's look at these scriptures about what it means to be forgiven. If you ever want to repent, if you feel any desire, that means you still can, right? The point where God sometimes says these people... I don't know what to do with them. It's when they're, they're past feeling. They're no, they no longer have that desire. Okay. So we'd opened in chapter 36, where Jeremiah writes the, the scroll of his prophecies, 
King Zedekiah receives that scroll and throws it bit by bit into the fire, right? In other words, we can get warned, we can be told these things, and we can choose to ignore them. We can choose to live in de denial. Okay. So God always is rooting for us to repent and will help us when we do, but we're just not always ready to do it. So, uh, David, maybe you can answer this question. Why is it that the Israelites were so hesitant to, to repent? <laughs> Why am I so <laughs> reluctant to repent? I, you know, I mean, that's one of life's questions, right? There are certain things that are appealing yeah. with sin. Uh, that, that's the trial and making those choices. And I, I think we all face it in various ways. Oftentimes, sin comes across as appealing. And I think in, in other ways, it's also highly addictive. And, and I don't mean necessarily, you know, word of wisdom addictive, although that certainly plays into it. Um, but there are certain things that we might do that form patterns in our life that it is just almost seemingly impossible to make those changes. Okay. And I think that's where the Holy Ghost ultimately has to come into play, that it, the Holy Ghost provides us with a, a daily, weekly, almost hourly means of, of trying to connect with our Heavenly Father and pull away from those patterns that we establish. And without that confirmation of the Holy Ghost, sometimes it's easy to look for other sources of salvation, which is really part of what's happening with the kingdom of Judah now, right? Is they're going, is God really gonna save us? I mean, Egypt might. I can see them. I can imagine how that would work out. Sometimes it's easier to trust an alternative way to think about our lives moving forward, kind of limping forward with sin, than it is to imagine this radical change that God promises us. Okay, so from the audience, how do you find the courage to repent? Brandon. When I think about my experience with repentance, for me, one of the biggest keys has been removing shame from the narrative. Uh, you know, recognizing the difference between shame and guilt, right? Guilt is like pain for our bodies. Okay, cool, I messed up. But shame is like, I, I'm a bad person for doing that. So as I've looked at my own experiences with repentance, as I've removed that and like, no, 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 that's a lie, I've found more courage, as the question said, to repent. I think that's a huge part of a lot of people's hesitation to repentance. So how, what did you do to get rid of that shame in your own repentance process? Thankfully, I've been blessed to be around some great people that have taught me this. Obviously, the scriptures, when really understood, don't preach shame, but sometimes aren't owned interpretations of them. They're like, oh, this is obviously meaning that I'm, you know, too far gone, right? And so I've had some awesome teachers, bishops, parents, and friends, um, but also just recognizing that the whole point is not perfection or like, all right, how long can I go without sinning? It's not like a good streak. This is not the gospel of good streaks. <laughs> it's the gospel of hope. It's the gospel of change and the gospel of Christ. And so for me, it's just been that line upon line building up a relationship with Christ through various means, through listening to the words of prophets, old and modern, that have made me open my eyes kind of spiritually and literally to be like, wow, actually, you know, I'm not 
I'm not as bad as I thought. You know, and actually I have a lot of potential, you know, not because of my own merit, but because of Christ. And he's so willing to give it to me. So. Man, Brandon, thank you uh, for, for sharing that. That was really good. And it, it caused me to think about something he said um, about we misunderstand the scriptures thinking that God is shaming us, you know, but uh, I love how you pointed out that as we come to understand the scriptures better, then we really understand how God views us and that shame can be removed. Yeah, and I think that's, that's really natural to get to that place because you don't need the scriptures to feel shame, right? <laughs> like this is a universal human experience. Yeah. And so it's natural to bring that, that shame, that hiding in the garden yeah, that right. we feel, right? Um, but hopefully instead of just doubling down on that through scriptures, we, we let the scriptures correct us back, right? Mm -hmm. And I love, Brandon, that you mentioned that other voices around you have been part of it. I, I hope, because we are voices in other people's lives, that our messages of here's how to avoid getting in trouble, here's how to avoid getting into sin, don't drown out the here's how to, to be resilient and how to learn when you make mistakes. I like that. I like that. Well, and I, and I would add to that, the, the, the separation, I, I really appreciate what was said, that idea of shame versus guilt. I, guilt is a gift of God. And in most mm -hmm. cases, if we respond to the spirit that says, oh, okay, you, you need to make some changes here. If, if we deal with that, it draws us closer to the community of Christ. Shame tends to be, oh, I, I'd be so embarrassed. You want to run and I, hide. I want to distance myself from that. So I start finding reasons why maybe I don't want to go to church. It reminds me, I, oh, I'd be so embarrassed somebody found out. You, you know, whatever it is, it, it, it pushes you or draws you, maybe is a better word for it, away from community of Christ. As we're talking about the gathering, there is a great gathering that is taking place, but this reminds me, as we're talking about this, that on, in a small sense, on a micro scale, the Lord is trying to gather in each of us as an individual through the preaching of repentance. One way that the gathering applies to our lives is as a reminder that no matter how long it takes, the Lord is reaching, he's calling us, he I wants to bring us together. There's a story in Jeremiah chapter 32 where here he is, imprisoned by the king, waiting for the city of Jerusalem to be destroyed and, and Judah to be taken captive. And he feels a prompting um, to go and buy a piece of land from the family. And they, he buys it and he makes a point of getting a witness uh, wow. to this transaction and then burying the, the silver, the price, as a way of saying, yes, trouble is coming, but I trust that in the long arc, the Lord's finishing his work, right? He's gonna complete this gathering and we'll return to this land again. So I think too, sometimes when we're gathering, it feels like, oh, it's a great season of gathering. Sometimes maybe we feel like Jeremiah, we don't know what's going on. And even in those times, right? Okay. The Lord calls us to, to invest, literally invest and, and put that, that treasure down as, as our sign that we believe that his gathering work is significant and will go forward. You know, I, as I knew we were going to address the idea of gathering, I went back to some research notes for another uh, bit of research I was working on at the time. And I found just a summary note where I had 
gone through the scriptures um, as carefully as I could looking for passages of scripture about gathering and, and, and the standard works across. And it, it ended up as 20 pages. It's not just President Nelson that's talked about the gathering. As you go back and you look at the scriptures, you know, what prompts Orson Hyde, he has a vision to go to Jerusalem for this dedicatory prayer for the gathering in the last days. You go back to statements that Joseph Smith has made about gathering, and it's just as powerful. And you can go through every wow. prophet of our dispensation. Well, where do they get that from? It's, it, it's inspiration, yes. But if you read those scriptures, the 20-page notes that I have, gathering is an essential part of our Heavenly Father's plan, uh, especially part of the rest restored gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you, David. And thank you both for your comments and audience. Thank you so much for your participation. Uh, as we've discussed our second topic, the Lord will bring Israel out of captivity and gather them. I think in helping others deal with grief, it's really important to help them realize how important it is in their life. A lot of times we try to avoid um, hard emotions because they're not easy and they're not fun. But I think once you realize how important and how much value they add to your life, it's a little bit easier to appreciate them. I think it helps all of us grow and, and become healthy and strong and closer to Christ. And knowing that you're not alone is so important in this world. And knowing that other people have painful experiences and have gone through them is important. I mean, grief is inevitable. We're all going to, to face it in some point and we all have it in certain degrees. But the fact that just accepting that grief and being able to relate now with other people in, in shared experiences, I think is gonna be what we'll, I'll be able to help other people with. Welcome to Come Follow Up Footnotes. All right, well, we've talked about some really good things and I, and I wanna continue that conversation. Uh, specifically, uh, David, you were talking about the gathering and you had brought up Orson Hyde and his role. I would love for you to kind of expand on that a little bit as we continue this discussion. Here's a comment from Joseph Smith. The subject of the gathering is a principle I esteem to be of the greatest importance to those who are looking for salvation in this generation. All that the prophets that have written from the days of righteous Abel down to the last man that has left any testimony on record for our consideration in speaking of the salvation of Israel in the last days goes directly to show that it consists in the work of the gathering. Wow. In 1840, in March, uh, Orson Hyde was in Nauvoo. Uh, he wasn't feeling very well. And he said one night, rather than fall asleep, he had a vision that lasted for six hours. And in the vision, he sees himself traveling to Constantinople and London and Beirut, ending up in Jerusalem. Wow. And so the next month is April, and in Nauvoo, west of where the temple is now, there was a place called the Grove. And Orson Hyde gets up and speaks, and he said, recently I had this vision. But as he talked about him going to Jerusalem and the experiences that he saw in that vision, he talked about the gathering uh, of, of the Jews and of the house of Israel. And as soon as he sits down, Joseph Smith jumps up and he said, I propose that Elder Hyde 
go on a mission to Jerusalem to dedicate the land for the gathering of the house of Israel. All those in favor, <laughs> you know, it's unanimous. A week after conference ends, one week, Orson Hyde and John E. Page leave on their mission, leave their families. Orson Hyde has two young children, leaves his wife. What is there about this gathering concept that becomes so important, which ties into what we talked about today with Jeremiah and Lamentations, right? So Joseph Smith, very much engaged with this, monitors how their progress. And so the next edition of the Times and Seasons, this is the church uh, newspaper, okay. so to speak. And it gets mailed out all over the United States to members. And so it's being directed to them. So the Times and Seasons, Joseph Smith. The Jewish nation have been scattered abroad among the Gentiles for a long period. And in our estimation, the time of the commencement of their return to the Holy Land has arrived. We have, by the counsel of the Holy Spirit, appointed Elder Orson Hyde, the bearer of these presents, a faithful and worthy minister of Jesus Christ, to be our agent and representative in foreign lands to visit the cities of London, Amsterdam, Constantinople, and Jerusalem. And then these are bullet points that I've sort of boiled it down to. Ministers of every denomination upon whom Mr. Hyde shall call are requested to hold up his hands and aid him by their influence. And, and, and so with this emphasis, everywhere that Elder Hyde, they're raising money. They don't have any money. Imagine the trip. Well, they're better off trying to raise money from the saints in the U.S. So they'd go to congregation, congregation. They'd sell brochures and pamphlets and try to collect that. There's some just wonderful stories. Ten months. And finally, Joseph Smith prints in the Times and Season and notice and said, I'm calling Elder Orson Hyde and John E. Page to repent. They need to get on their way to Jerusalem. <laughs> and they've sort of separated to raise money. And so Elder Hyde gets on a ship and on his way. And wow. now he gets into England. Raising money becomes a whole different story, right? And he's, he's got to have those resources, funds, which he does get miraculously. And then he makes his way uh, into Germany, Bavaria, and ultimately uh, he leaves for Jerusalem. He's only in Jerusalem for four days. That's it? That's it. Wow. Four days. And ultimately he, he on a Sunday morning, gets up on the 24th of October and leaves the city, old city of Jerusalem, walks up on the Mount of Olives, which only has a few houses there and goes up to the top and then offers this amazing dedicatory prayer for the gathering of Judah and, and the house of Israel and blesses the land in yeah, 1841. And this is super interesting to me, right? That normally we think about the gathering in terms of the part that, that we as a church are most directly responsible for. That, that through missionary work, we're bringing people into the restoration and building Zion communities Would together. Would you call it like a right? modern gathering? That's one of two okay. is the point that this Orson Hyde mission makes, right? Gotcha. So we focus on the side where we're gathering people into the faith and building up Zion spiritually. Okay. There's also this separate gathering that's a physical gathering of the dispersed people Tribes. of the house of Israel, okay. right? The same way that, that Jeremiah is talking about. And I don't know, for, for me growing up, you know, we had all these books that my grandpa would send about Jewish history and the things we've been through. And to know that Orson Hyde cared, that Joseph Smith cared, that God cared, right? And said, as he does in the Book of Mormon repeatedly, I haven't forgotten my ancient covenant people, 
right? When God makes a promise, he sticks with it. Growing up to me, Orson Hyde's mission was a sign that God had not forgotten the Jewish people, okay. right? And that all this suffering I'd learned about, God saw it, God remembered it, and God had a plan to gather. And we don't know the details of how all that works out and how there's gonna be inheritance and peace from all the children of Abraham, but, but we do know that, that for Abraham, Isaac, Ishmael, all these characters we read about in the Old Testament, the, the day's coming when, when God is bringing people together. Okay. And, and I think it's important to add, it, it's, there is a physical gathering. We see that with Independence, Missouri. There is a physical place with the saints eventually trying to gather in these valleys that we're at, you know, here in Utah, where we're speaking from. So there's a, there's a, and I keep going over, why Jerusalem? What is there about Jerusalem? Well, you read Lamentations, you read Jeremiah. There are promises made to ancient prophets that there has to be this gathering. And I, and, and I think it extends to all of Abraham and his descendants and beyond. You know, you look at Abraham chapter one, when somebody enters into the covenants of the church of baptism, they become part of the house of Israel. Whether they become part of this gathering. It's not, you know, you know, does that mean that if I live in England that I've got to change location? And we learned a long time ago, no, that's not what this is talking right. about. But there, there has to be this dedicatory, physical, prayer that Joseph Smith sees as part of this. And, and I really liked what you said, James, is it, it gets very complicated. What does that mean? Yeah. You know, I used to get a lot of people when I was first teaching seminary and they'd call up and say, oh, we're having this, this fireside and we want somebody to come talk about the second coming. Would you come talk about the second coming? <laughs> and I'd go, oh, I, you know, and they just really want, and, and you end up because of the way the second coming is treated and the scriptures scattered all over, you start out in many ways fabricating events that you don't have any idea how they're right. going to come yep. to be fulfilled. And, and I oftentimes think that I have good, good friends over in Jerusalem of every background and culture that I love dearly. I do not know how it's ultimately going to be done. I just know the promise is there. Yeah. And, and maybe one way to think of it too is we think a lot about the physical resources in earth and what it means to be a good steward of physical resources and, and that space. Jerusalem is one place that's a spiritual resource for humanity, right? <laughs> and so we need to do a lot of thinking about how do we honor that? How do we take care of that? The same way that we do thinking about how do you how do you build up other places to become a spiritual resource, right? History and memory and these, these associations of how God interacted with people at different times, that, that builds up a very real resource. Okay. When, when you think about the Jerusalem Center in the Holy Land, the outreach there and having lived there at the Jerusalem Center for so many years, the outreach is every single person in that community in every way that you might imagine. It is one of the most glorious experiences that I've had to, to be at the Jerusalem Center and see these different cultures and backgrounds and the brotherhood and sisterhood of those who work there, uh, not members of the church, but work with that influence of our young students who you can hardly hold back for their enthusiasm. And I think as you listen to stories of all these people in Jerusalem, one thing you'll learn is the way that lamentation and gathering fit together, okay. right? So like for my family, for, 
For Jews who come to Jerusalem, it's inseparable from the Holocaust experience where a lot of them who were refugees afterwards and that sort of thing, they're two sides of this mirror, right? That you pass through this really difficult period where there was all this suffering and then they found home here. For, for Palestinians, right, there are different memories of Jerusalem that are tinged with, with loss and suffering and that's inseparable from this story of Jerusalem. So I think that city of Jerusalem teaches us all a lesson that, that in our lives individually and collectively, moments of, of sorrow and lamentation are inseparable from moments of, of gathering and rejoicing. Okay. So we have, you know, we've been talking about, you know, Jeremiah and uh, I'd love to get into more of lamentations and we have some, some great objects here that we can discuss a little bit. We talked about the importance of grief Okay. In, in our personal lives and how we deal with that. One of the themes of Jeremiah and Lamentations uh, that I think a lot of people today can relate to is that macro level. How, okay. how do we collectively feel like we're on the wrong course? And how do you deal with that? Very early in Jeremiah, there's this familiar image that people may know of sackcloth and ashes. It says in, in Jeremiah 6, 26, O daughter of my people, gird thee with sackcloth and wallow thyself in ashes. Make thee mourning as for an only son, most bitter lamentation, for the spoiler shall suddenly come upon us. So even before all the troubles come, the Lord is telling people, get ready, right? And you think about ash. When people had this, this tradition okay. for, for repentance or for mourning, of taking sackcloth, rough cloth, they tear clothes um, to show that things are broken and then, and then use physical ash okay. that's on you that's making this difference. I think that's the Lord's way of saying, yeah, when there's trouble, right? Like, own it. Don't hide your face from it. Um, and so Jeremiah's a, a really visceral lesson in doing that. Okay. We're at a time where there's a lot of different things that people might worry about, right? Whether it's political discord, whether it's environmental things, and what kind of world are we leaving for our kids, um, whether it's cultural and moral things, right? There's just, there's a lot, and I think we can get caught up in that. And, and so, yeah, what, one question I've had is, how do you lament in a good way that takes seriously the problems uh, that, that doesn't become a sort of negative despair. Okay, so, for, so kind of like the good grief. <laughs> good grief versus... We talked about shame and guilt. Shame and guilt, okay. Right? Yeah. So how do we, at a societal level, go ahead. No, I think that's, that's the great, that idea of despair. I, you know, the whole idea of guilt is to motivate us to change, right? That's repent, to turn in a different direction. That, that, that whole notion, this idea of grief, especially when you get to the ashes, is, is one of, whoa, look at what I've done. This recognition of sorrow because of what's happening in society in Jerusalem of Jeremiah. And if you're putting ashes on yourself, you're also showing other people, right? Okay. Like, I acknowledge that this is a time for sorrow and a time for suffering. So yeah, I'm, I'm interested as a, a poet and as a disciple in, in how do you find the collective equivalent of guilt without getting to that shame where you're just despairing defeatist. So, okay. so here's a couple poems. 
Gonna share some poems. So this one's called Upon the Sand. We'd imagined God's wrath would jolt us, pyrotechnic show-stopping apocalypse commanding our attention. So we missed the subtle sea striving, the slow rotting away of root and branch. We slept through days of should-have-been decision, opting out of a greater vision and into the rhythm pounding like the waves of the sins of each generation argued over where to build the walls of a house, never noting the feeling of the sand beneath our feet. The part where it crashes down isn't climax, it's epilogue. And yeah, I think if you're feeling that anyway, right? For a lot of people, it's this, it's this vague, uncanny feeling. But if you can start to name it and say, wait, what, what if we're the ones on a sandy foundation? I've been singing about this since primary. Right. And what if it's there, right? How do I get my, how do we wake up before that moment comes? I hope that sometimes if we take a moment to rest with that vague feeling of discomfort, it can mature into a, a wake-up call and, and a call to vision rather than just compounding into this despair. Okay. You know, it seems like part of the challenge that we all face is that we're masters of displacing responsibility. So when our life starts to take a turn for the worse, it's, we explain it in other ways than to look inward to say, where do I need to make some adjustments here? And, and maybe major changes, but it's so easy to just, it's everybody else's fault that the world's going this direction, but not mine. You know, I, I, it's such a difficult thing to kind of look at ourselves. We do that every Sunday, we sacrament meeting. We partake of the sacrament. We get a chance to reflect on ourselves. And not that we need to beat ourselves up, but it's a time of evaluation. It's a time of reflection. It's a time of, there are a couple of things I need to do differently this week. Yeah, and that's a nice connection to Jeremiah because it's not that other people in Jerusalem didn't see that there was a potential threat, right? It's that they said, well, okay, if we can ally with Egypt, if we can do this, exactly. we've got a way out, okay. right? And, and what, they, what I think they missed that I hope we can see is if you feel that sense that things are going in a wrong way, you need to do that deep introspection, right? What's the way that, that what are you missing, not just whether it's Babylon and Egypt or two parties, Cause, right? Cause some of these things you don't have any control o over, right? If, you, if you're constantly waiting for someone else to fix your problems, you're out of control. At least you can take ownership of, okay, what can I do in my own life to manage some of the things that I'm experiencing as opposed to what, what are they gonna do for me? You know, within society, you've got people that are pro-Babylon. Pro you've got people at every level We've got people that are pro-Egypt. We've got these two main powers. We have the Assyrian collapse of what's taken place before. We talked about that the last time. And you have people in between. You know, God won't fail us. He stopped the Assyrians from destroying Jerusalem. So you put all those together and you find excuse for not being on the path that you should be on. You know, we'll point to all these other. Yeah. Here's another poem that this reminds me of. It's called He Who Hath. And some poems, you, you put a quote on the top, right? Is this epigraph. So this one is from the Book of Mormon. 
neither did they believe that Jerusalem, that great city, could be destroyed according to the words of the prophets, 1 Nephi 2.13. This, of course, referring to Laman and Lemuel, who were, were typical of a lot of people in Jerusalem, thinking it, it can't happen to us. Sealed up like plates of burnished brass, revered but never heeded. We had tongues for every taste, but not the ears we needed. Right? And I think for myself, how do I sometimes lament, sometimes putting on the metaphorical sackcloth and ashes is a matter of saying, how do I not get distracted <laughs> into those tongues for every taste, into thinking this will be the, the total solution, this will be the total solution, but how do I look deeper, right? And how do I try to figure out, how do we build that Zion God, God called us to make? So, okay, as imagine... I'm a viewer at home watching and I'm listening to all this and I'm thinking to myself, okay, so what does that mean for me as an individual, you know, living in the society in which we live in today? How do I make sense of this and learn from what Jeremiah is preaching and from the, how the Israelites responded to that? You know, I, I, when I, early in my career, um, when I, we lived in Canada and we did a know your religion that was in British Columbia. And I, I decided to do something on self-deception. It was a two, three day, you teach a couple of seminars on self-deception. You go through all of the ways in which we deceive ourselves, you know, in our relationships, in our, in our um, faith, so to speak. And what I found happening is at the end, I'd have people come up and say, oh, thank you, that was so meaningful. I wish my husband were here <laughs> to hear this. That's the challenge, right? It's easy to always turn outward, and yet you don't want to turn so inward that we beat ourselves up, you know, be therefore perfect eventually. Yeah. But, but so, so how do we obtain that right you know, sacrament meeting balance of saying, here are some things I need to work on without shaming ourselves or being in a state of despair. And um, There's a right way to do it. There's a wrong way to do it. Yeah. And as you talk about that perfection, I think of the, the scriptural phrase, perfect love casteth out all fear. I really feel like love can give us the power to face problems without running, without projecting, right? So God wants us to face the challenges but he wants to do it from, from this solid foundation of perfect love. His love for us and the love we can have for each other, right? And when I have that love and I see the problems not through a context of what's everything wrong with humanity. My, my son loves animals and sometimes he goes like, humans are the worst, right? <laughs> like the other animals, they're doing, man, humans are the worst. No, right? Like we're God's children and we're, we're certainly capable of creating a lot of problems. Yes. But, but if we can work from a foundation of love, we can acknowledge that. And actually one of the last poems in this book of Lamentations echoing a principle in chapter three of the biblical book of Lamentations, right? Mm -hmm. Easter 2020, we're in lockdown. There's a lot of problems on my mind that are, that are weighing really heavily in terms of what's going on in the broader world beyond that moment, right? And I'm feeling it all. And my four-year-old daughter, Layla, came to me and she saw me writing in a journal, what are you doing? Well, I'm working on my poem now, honey. We can play a little bit later. I'm working on some poetry. And she said this, uh, make a poem for me and make all the words of love. 
and I stopped and I put my notebook down and I picked another one up, a fresh notebook and, and wrote a poem at the very beginning. So this is called a gift and that epigraph, make a poem for me and make all the words of love, Layla, age four, Easter 2020. If the breath is life, make it love. And if the eye is light, make it love. If the beginning was the word and the word was with God, make God love and make me a poem. Yes, tell me a poem. Yes, show me a poem of love. If we just despair because we think, well, things could be better, right? If it's out of pride that we're lamenting, it will become despair. Okay. But if it's out of love that we're lamenting, right? We're anchored in something deeper and hopefully that lament will become action, will become repentance, will become this step-by-step this -step building out from what's in our individual sphere to reaching out and trying to, to heal the world around us. That is, that's amazing. Thank and you for sharing that, And the Old James. Testament tells us God will give us beauty for ashes, right? And I think that doesn't just mean you'll have bad things and good things, but the very things that are most difficult can be transformed into that moment of beauty. I love it. Boy, thank you. This has been just wonderful to share these scriptures together, to talk about our Heavenly Father and, and read scripture that was written so many centuries ago and see the application to our lives today and our Heavenly Father, his role in wanting to bring his children back to the truth, to the covenants that they've made, baptism, uh, to reach out to those that haven't entered into those covenants and extend that opportunity to every one of them. And it's just uh, been absolute treat for me in every way. So thank you. Thank you, James. Well, we've really enjoyed efforts. having you. Thanks for taking the time to, to be with us today. And James, as we talked about our two topics, how can lamentations help me with my own grief? And the Lord will bring Israel out of captivity and gather them. Thank you both for joining us. And thank all of you for being with us here today. We want to again invite you and encourage you to follow through with any promptings or, or feelings you may have had throughout this episode. Thanks again for being with us. Please join us next time for another episode of Come Follow Up. Come Follow Up is a production of BYU Broadcasting. 